Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. We'll go ahead and turn our attention to continuing our sermon series. We've been in this the last several weeks, and the name of this series is The Unknown God, but then the un part of that is stricken through. Because God is not unknown, he has gone out of his way to make himself known. That God intends for you to know him with certainty uh, and to know him personally and to know him in a way that uh, draws you into a right relationship with him. And as we've been going through the series, we've been looking at a number of different ways that we can think theologically. That the, uh, theology, that word, that's the study of God. And so anytime you enter into a context where you're trying to think and make sense of God and, and that kind of that concept in general, uh, it, you move into those types of realms. And there's different lenses that you can use to begin to have some discovery. In the first couple of weeks, we've talked about uh, two different lenses. One is natural theology, that there's a way of discovering truths about who God is and what we can be certain of him when we just look at creation, the world around us, when we move into the fields of natural sciences and begin to have inquiry and discovery and to come to conclusions in that place and that God has gone out of his way to demonstrate himself in creation. You can see uh, the creativity of God. You can see the power of God. You can see that God is a God of order. Uh, You can see a lot of different things there. The idea that God is somebody uh, who brings life out of death and and those types of concepts. But if you were going to kind of land on character and nature of God, you know, you might be hard-pressed to look at the natural world and come to a conclusion that God is loving or to come to a conclusion that God extends grace, or that God is a God of salvation. You you come to those realizations through other lenses um, that give you a different perspective. And so natural theology and kind of moving in through the sciences, you can have an incredible uh, world of discovery about some things that are true about God, but they're going to be limited. And so we looked at the last couple of weeks, another lens is called revealed theology. And that means the way that God has been revealed in Holy Scripture and through religious experience. And we've unpacked those the last couple of weeks. Uh, But both of those uh, have limitations to them. Both of those lenses have limitations to them. And sometimes it would be uh, almost uncomfortable for us to think that if I'm just reading my Bible and studying Scripture, that somehow that, that, that wouldn't be enough for me to have a real robust understanding of who God is. That shouldn't I just be able to read this and know this? And, and really, the question that I would offer you is when you go to Scripture and read it, do you feel like you understand it? Well, parts of it, Right. Uh, sometimes, and then depending on how deep you go and what uh, uh, framework of study you use, you can actually end up more confused sometimes, and maybe you've been in that place. Maybe this was the year that you were going to read your Bible, right? This was the year starting January. This is it, pastor. I'm going to do it, and, and maybe you got January 1. You started well, and then the next day you went back to work, and then like that was it, right? The, we, we have challenges and, and, and things along those lines, and sometimes when you are using a natural lens and you're just kind of moving into uh, natural sciences, the way that 
secular relativism uh, influences that. You can feel almost like you get lost. Um, you can move into a study of Scripture. Maybe you even decided, man, this year I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover from front to back, and you began to look into that, but there's like things that you don't understand. You've got more questions than you have answers, or there's things that are written about in the Bible that you're, you're not really sure how to make sense of, or they, they make God seem unrelatable or distant, or maybe you don't feel like you know enough. We become unlearned in our own eyes. As you begin to move into natural theology and look through uh, kind of the natural sciences or begin to do some deeper scriptural study, we can end up in a place where we're not really sure that we know. And part of that challenge is the world that you and I live in really has a, a high degree of criticism towards the idea of God and the way that he would relate to our lives. And that's not just because there's like a secular, secular and sacred element to life. And it's not just because there's a material and immaterial uh, relationship in life. Part of the reason why there's that hostility is because sin is a part of this world. See, the, the world is, is broken, in a sense. And whether you are a person of faith or not, whether you are a Christ follower or not, you could sit in any gathering of people and say, is the world working the way that it should or the way that proper order would dictate? Are people being cared for? Are, is right right and wrong right? Like, you don't need a, a faith framework to look at the world and say that there's things that are broken in it. And one of the struggles that you and I have when it comes to like really knowing God with certainty, with clarity, uh, in a personal sense for sure, is the fact that we live in a world that is broken and in many ways hostile to that truth. I want you to think, go back, go back to Genesis, okay? Go back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He speaks, he goes through the acts of creation, in his community of personhood, he says, let us make man in our own image, and then male and female, he creates, like, you, you see that happening. And in those first chapters, there was no wrestling with Adam and Eve as to who God was, where he was, what he was doing, because he was there. And even after the fall in chapter two and three, when you see things kind of get disrupted, when sin comes in and they, they hide, they hide themselves from God. They feel the shame. They feel the guilt. They know something's broken. They can feel it. Even in that narrative, it said that God enters the garden as he often did and says, hey, where are you? So even in, at that moment of fracture, of brokenness in the world, God was still pursuing. He was still present. He still showed up just like he did every other time. But they began to recluse and hide from him. And as humanity has progressed, that kind of reclusion, that separation, it's become more and more pronounced because there has been a greater and greater brokenness that's compounded through the ages through just that timeline of life. And so for you and I, when now we're in this place where it's like we can look and, and we know more now in natural sciences than we've ever known before, right? The amount of information, the amount of discoveries, the amount of things that are happening in that, we know more than we've ever known before, and yet we live in a world that is more confused about who God is than ever before. We have more and more archaeological, historical, sociological discoveries that 
affirm the truths of Scripture over and over and over and over again, but it seems like we know so much, but we feel like we know less and less about who God is. That there's more questions in that. There's a way of approaching Scripture. We've looked at this the last couple of weeks, that the Word of God is constantly under scrutiny in the world that we live in. It'll be relegated to a a historical text that is maybe helpful. Sometimes it's relegated to an allegorical text that's just kind of telling truths or stories, but not really factual. Sometimes it's relegated to a mythological text and would just say, well, you know what, a lot of it's just a ripoff of other ancient cultures, antiquitous mythology. There's all kinds of these different lenses, textual, source, form, literary, all of these criticisms, and there's a growing criticism called redaction. We've talked a little bit about this. Redaction means that I just take out the parts that I don't like. And so because that's the world that you and I live in, sometimes we, we really struggle. We really struggle to articulate our faith. We really struggle to know for certainty. We can even kind of struggle with God's word on our own. And maybe you've been in that place where you're like, man, I know this is supposed to be the word of God, but how can I know that it's the word of God? You know, is it any different or any better than other quote unquote holy scriptures of other man traditions? See, that is a part of the world that you and I are living in right now. And what can end up happening is we can get lost in some of these theological frameworks to the degree that we start becoming more confused than we are certain. And there's a way to kind of end up in a, in a couple, I would say, uh, spectrum extremes. One is called agnosticism. It's actually a really popular type of faith, not faith in academic circles. Agnosticism means this, that I can, I can profess that there is a God, but I also profess that he can't be known. You, you can't actually know for sure. There's something. I, I believe that there's something, but I can't actually know. That's agnosticism in a nutshell. It says that God exists, but you could never know him. And then there's another kind of framework that creeps in. It's called deism. It's not a new idea. It's something that was popular in the early parts of the establishment of our nation. And deism says this, that there is a God who created, but he's not a part of what's going on anymore. Deism says that God set everything in motion. It's the watchmaker type of theology where you start a watch and you wind it up and then you let it go. And then whatever ends up happening is what ends up happening. So I can say there is a God, but he's not interested in me. And those are some extremes that you can end up with as you kind of begin to try to make sense of knowing God and move into just kind of these uh, 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 revealed theological frameworks or natural theology frameworks. And you can end up in this place where I, I think I know that there's a God, but I could never know. Or I, I'm pretty sure that there's a God, but he's not interested in me. And if you use one of those frameworks on their own, or if you use those as just academic pursuits, those are easy extremes to get to. 
And it's into that type of uncertainty, that type of like wrestling out the, 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 the inquiry and just kind of the questions that you have. It's into that type of background that God has personally stepped in. See, in the garden at the beginning, there was just man in relationship with God. There was no like, where is he or what's happening? There was no like, he's impersonal or unknown. The picture that you get in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is that daily God would commune with Adam and Eve, that there was a daily interaction. There was a personal, present, relational transaction every single day. And so if they were to go through natural theological curiosity and discovery, they would have just been finding affirmation after, after, after affirmation, there we go, of what they would have already been experiencing about God. As God's word was being spoken and spoken into their lives, it would have just been affirming things that they already knew were true. But because there's sin in the world and because there's fracture and brokenness and how you and I begin life now is not in daily communion with the Lord, but in separation because of that brokenness. We labor, even when we have these healthy and helpful frameworks of theology, we can still get lost because we're trying to find a way to personal connection through academic pursuit. And that's a difficult place to get to. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. Because at some point, God has to be present in your life. At some point, it's got to be real. You've got to be able to touch it. It's got to make a difference. It's got to be more than just kind of a Bible quiz. It's got to be more than just a, a scientific discovery. It has to have flesh and blood on it. It has to make a difference in your life. And that is precisely, listen to me, that is precisely why Jesus came. It's precisely why Jesus came the most accessible and the most relatable revelation of God that you will ever be introduced to is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Even if that is introduced into your life independent of any natural theological framework or any revealed theology whatsoever. You can know nothing about the word of God and have an encounter with Jesus and everything changes for you. You can know nothing about natural sciences, and many of us, that's exactly where we're at, and have an encounter with Jesus and everything changes for you. Because the idea of Christology, the idea of the study of Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus stepping into human time and history, it puts flesh on all of these wanderings about who God is, and it makes it something that's easily accessible and relatable. If you've got your Bible, I encourage you to get that out. If you've got your smartphone or your tablet, go ahead and open up your Bible app, and if you'd like to get a head start, we're going to be in John chapter 5 in just a moment. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would speak to us through your word, but Lord, more than your word being spoken into our lives, more than it just being living and active. Lord, let it be a lens today for us to rightly see Jesus and in doing so rightly know you. Lord, that there would be an awakening in us that draws us to the transformation of not knowledge about God, but the transformation that comes when we personally interact with you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 5. We're going to be there in just a second. We spent the last couple weeks talking about revealed theology. We've been talking about scripture and kind of the way that that reveals truths about who God is, that you can read from Genesis to Revelation and you can make concrete, accurate discoveries about who God is, his character, his nature, how he would work and deal within the realm of creation. And in doing so, we can make inferences as to how he would act and interact in our lives as well. But scriptures not only reveal truths about who God is, but they also accurately testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ. One of the things that the revelation of scripture does is not just tell me that God creates, or that God's powerful, or that God is a God of grace or provision, that he's Jehovah Rapha and he heals, Jehovah Jireh and he provides. Those things are all true. They tell me things about God, but there's a more profound thing that scripture always points to. And in John chapter five, Jesus is going to draw our attention to this. And if you were gonna read the whole of John chapter five, the backdrop of it, uh, uh, of it is that Jesus is uh, in a... Um, is in a context on the Sabbath, finding himself in a place where he does a supernatural, miraculous physical healing. There's a man by a pool. He's been crippled his whole life. Jesus comes and just starts shooting the breeze with him and then tells him to get up, roll up his mat, and just like get on with it, and the dude does. And then all of a sudden, the stuff that's coming out of this is a, is a high critique of Jesus. Because the people who were experiencing that and the ones that had the biggest questions, they actually had a really strong revealed theology, or at least they believed that they did. They had a very strong understanding of what they thought they understood Scripture to be pointing to and what it meant. They had a high ideal for like this religious one, two, three, you got to get it right and follow all the rules. And what Jesus was doing wasn't doing that. He wasn't following the natural rules of just the broken world because he was healing somebody, and that's not even what they had the problem with, but he also wasn't following the religious rules either because of when and how he was doing it. And so he was falling under this critical lens in a number of different camps, and he was being challenged on what was taking place. And if you were going to read the rest of the chapter, he moves into uh, kind of a defense of himself, a testimony of who he is and why he would and could and should be operating the way that he is. And their framework and their understanding of who he is and what he was doing was that he was just some man doing like the miraculous. And it didn't jive with how they understood the world to be. And it didn't jive with what they understood God's kind of priorities to be. What they thought they really knew about God said that this was out of bounds. And so Jesus begins to challenge what they really thought about God. And as he begins to have this exchange, this interaction with them, he makes a really provocative statement. And in doing so, he infers that he and God are the same. That he and God are equal. 
and their understanding, their, their framework, their context of revealed theology, that was offensive. It was what would be called blasphemous, and you were put to death for stuff like that. And in fact, if you read John 5, it said that they purposed in their heart to do that, to kill Jesus for what he was doing and what he was saying. Now, for you and I, looking back from kind of our context, for the most part, if you've grown up kind of churched and, and, and through the lens that, that we understand, we would know that Jesus is God. We would have this idea of the Trinity. We'd have a Trinitarian theology that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right? And that, that each God, but distinct in expression, but not distinct from one another. And then we start to kind of get spun in a circle and we get lost, right? Anybody feel that way? Right? I mean, we, we do. Like, we know it's true, but we can't necessarily explain all of it. But we do know what Jesus is saying and what he's affirming here is correct. And so as he begins to make that affirmation, he moves into how he could say it. Like, what's the proof in the pudding of that? And in verse 36, as he begins to affirm this idea that he and God are the same. He says this, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. Now, specifically here, he's talking in, in a, a broad context of the things that were happening in his ministry, the deliverance, the healings, uh, all of those types of things, but he's also alluding to what he had just done, which had been a miraculous physical healing. And he's saying, hey, uh, this proves what I'm saying is true. Who else is doing that? Nobody. Who else has that authority? Who else is demonstrating that power? Right? He's trying to draw their attention to what they literally can't deny. It just happened for them. And then he moves on, and the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form. And they wouldn't have a problem with that because their Old Testament framework and understanding was that nobody had seen God. Nobody had seen his face. They'd be okay with that. And then he moves a little bit further and now he starts poking at them. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Now they'd be offended immediately to say that the word of God did not dwell in them, especially as academics of God's word, religious leaders of the structure. But then Jesus says this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Again, this is going to be a provocative statement because again, he is, ass he is assigning himself this equality with God, but one of the things that you find is there a, there's a lens that you can use to go and look at Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, where in every book you see Jesus. That in the narratives, in, in the interactions, in the allegories, in the, uh, in the parables, that there is things that are pointing to Jesus. The Word of God always, listen to me, it always points us to Jesus. This is so important. See, we spent the last two weeks talking about the way that God's Word reveals Him to us, right? 
that God reveals himself to us. It reveals truths about us, our need for salvation. It reveals uh, a self-awareness. It reveals our blind spots. It, it puts us in uh, a stark awareness of our brokenness and our need. But then in doing all of that, it also brings us to the hope of redemption, the hope of being reconciled. It doesn't just expose our need and say, look, you're broken and needy. It says, look, you're broken and needy. How would you like to be whole and healed? And then it points to the one who does this. Jesus makes this provocative statement here, but it's true. All of Scripture points to Jesus. All of Scripture exposes Jesus. You can end up studying Scripture and feel like you know less than you began. You can move into a place where you are uncertain. Or you can, in kind of a, a certain type of arrogance, study all of Scripture and be able to quote it all and just be like, yeah, I know it. But can I tell you that the goal of God's Word is not for you to just know it and apply it to your life. All of those principles are helpful and healthy, but the goal of God's word is for you to know Jesus. Because as soon as you encounter Jesus, the word of God moves from just stories written on page to being flesh and blood and something that you can actually wrap your humanity around. You begin to understand who God is and the way that he would relate to you personally because you can see and understand who Jesus was and what he did in a very practical and purposeful way and what he offers you and I to receive as well. And when you begin to look in Scripture and you begin, if you were, if you were going to use a lens of, of, of discovering Jesus in, in the whole of God's Word, the easiest place to start is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because it's literally the narrative of Jesus' life in his story. Like, start with the low-hanging fruit where it'll say, Jesus did this, and you can imagine and see and sense and understand that. And what happens is you begin to encounter Jesus in Scripture you begin to encounter the heart and the character and the nature and the activity of God. And when he speaks, you hear the very words of God being spoken. And when he acts, you see the very power of God being demonstrated. In John chapter 14, Jesus is getting ready to spend his last kind of seated teaching with his disciples. John chapter 14, 15, and 16, he's in the upper room. He washes the disciples' feet. He institutes communion, something that we did today. They're celebrating the Passover, and very shortly, they're going to leave that context, and he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be put to death. All of that is just about to happen. But right prior to that, John 14, 15, and 16, he's with his disciples and he's giving them the last kind of teaching content before all of this takes place. And he's setting up the, the expectation that he's going to be gone, that he's going to be missing. And as he begins that, they, they don't really understand what he's saying. They don't have a framework for it. They just know that they're uncomfortable with the conversation. And so Philip speaks up in kind of this uncertainty and he speaks up in verse 8 of John chapter 14, and he says, Lord, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. 
right? I, I'm sure that you've been in this place at times in your own life where the uncertainty, the disruption, the confusion, your doubts, kind of that darkness pressing in, and you're like, I'm not really sure what the answer is, and you were just like, like, God, just like show me your face, right? Just like give me the bright light, give me, like, do something dramatic, right? And Philip's in that place, he's just like, like, just show us the Father, like, just show us. And Jesus' answer is very poignant. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Earlier in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus makes a very succinct statement where he just says, I and the Father are one. When you encounter Jesus in Scripture, you encounter encounter the, the, the heart, character, nature, in the activity of God, you, you see how God interacts with his creation because you can actually, you can sense make of it Jesus in the flesh doing those things. When somebody's sin is found out and they're outed in front of everybody and they're being placed in a point of judgment and then Jesus says, he who is without sin should be the one who casts the first stone. Where are your accusers? They're gone while I forgive you as well. Like, That's God's heart. That's not our human experience with the people around us, but that's the heart of God, redemption and forgiveness. Scripture says that love covers a multitude of sins, that the kindness of God draws us to repentance. Like you see see all of these, these, these things. You see Jesus speak to the storm and it stops. You see Jesus miraculously provide lunch for those who are hungry. Like you see all these things. You know that God's your provider. You know that God is a God of redemption and restoration. You, you know that God is a God of power. You can go to the Old Testament and you can see those things, but then you can read something about Jesus and it puts flesh and bones on it and you can understand it to a greater degree. You can hear Jesus tell a parable of the prodigal son, the one who is wayward and rebellious and running into self-destruction and comes to a place of epiphany and just says, man, I would be better off as a slave in that house than living the way that I'm living right now and coming with his tail between his legs and just kind of dragging his broken self back. And then you see, as Jesus tells the story of the way that the father responds to it and you can see it and you can feel it and hope rises in you that God would treat you that same way. Because all of a sudden, concepts theological frameworks about a God who is far off is now made flesh and blood real in front of you and you can, you can touch it, you can sense it, you can feel it. When, when you and I encounter Jesus, we encounter more than theological considerations. We encounter more than just kind of natural processes and scientific discoveries like our theological thoughts and our theological confusions, like all of that stuff kind of dissipates when I encounter Jesus because I can touch and feel and understand that. See, in Genesis, you and I were created in the image of God. 
Let us make man in our image. And there's this, this beauty and this validity that is given to you, a value that is given to you, intrinsic because of that. And sin has broken that and has, has caused all kinds of disruptions. And so a lot of times, we're, we're, it's hard for us to like, how do, how do I even know? And so the answer to that is this. God entered into our context in the image of his creation. Have you ever thought about that? You and I are created in the image of God, but to restore us and to recover us, he came in the image of man. Because I can, I, can, I can make sense of that. And when you encounter Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, you're never the same. In Acts chapter 9, there was a man named Saul. Later on, his name is changed to Paul. Many of you would already recognize who he was. When we began this series, Paul was using a natural theology lens to speak about Jesus. He was using a revealed theology, talking to the academics in Athens. That's how we began our framework for this. But there was a point in his life where he knew a lot about natural theology. He knew a lot about scripture, but he didn't know Jesus at all. He, didn't, he was so far from God. And it was in his encounter on, a, on the road to Damascus to persecute the church that he has this encounter with Jesus and he says, hey, who, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And he was never the same. I want to reinforce this for you today. I want to encourage you to be somebody who uses natural theology. You need to press into the sciences and inquiry and discovery and, and see what truths that you can find out about God. Don't be, don't be afraid of that. Like, God is the God of creation. His creation is not going to expose him as not being the creator. Like, you need to press into revealed theology. You need to know the word of God. You need to practice spiritual disciplines. You need to, to do that for your own growth and your own maturity. But more than any of that, you can know a lot about scientific inquiry, and you can know everything from Scripture front to back and still miss Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. And maybe even as we've been going through this, this, this series, you've, you've felt a little bit like, I don't know anything about any of this stuff. Pastor, I'm going home and having to look up some of the words that you used. Right? You can feel almost like that is a disqualifier. Can I tell you, just meet Jesus. One of the most exciting movements that's happening in the world right now is the number of people in closed nations, particularly Muslim closed nations, that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, not because a missionary has shown up, not because there's some type of school, not because there's some type of parachurch organization digging wells and giving away free food, but because there are men and women who are earnestly trying to seek an understanding of who God is, and Jesus is revealing himself to them in dreams and in visions. They're having Paul moments right now all over the globe. And in fact, one, um, one mission organization that would kind of categorize these types of studies would say that right now, those who are in kind of closed Muslim context that are coming to faith in Jesus, that 25% of those are doing so because Jesus appeared to them in a dream or a vision. 
you can know next to nothing about the last three weeks that we've talked about and have an earnest heart that seeks the Lord. And this is what I guarantee you. If you earnestly seek God, you will inevitably, inevitably, you will encounter Jesus. Because Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. Why? Because he and the Father are one. God has demonstrated his accessibility, his relatability. He's made himself available to you and I in the person and the work of Jesus. And it is the most easily recognizable and understood way to know for certain who God is and what he could do in your life. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning and we'll close. Worship team, if you would come forward. Take just a moment. We'll take just a moment to respond. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself, not just through creation. Lord, not just through spoken and written word. Not just through these lenses where we've got to put kind of some work and some effort into it and where there's kind of inquiry and discovery and, and uh, place where, where we're active in that. Lord, that you, along with those things that are so helpful, so positive, Lord, that you didn't leave it up to us to try to reason our way back to you. You showed up. Lord, you became Emmanuel. You became God with us. You became with us. You took on flesh and you entered into time and space and context so that we would know you. Lord, that we wouldn't just have ideas about you. That we would not just know about how you had interacted in times past. But God, you went out of your way to restore us to right relationship, to draw us back to the garden. Where in our daily interaction, we could know you, that you would be present. That you would be personal. And Lord, for my friends here today, Lord, for every earnest heart here today, let them encounter Jesus. Lord, for some, of that, for some of us, that would be reawakening that first love. It would be drawing us back to the simplicity of knowing you because you've made yourself known. Drawing us to that place where we surrendered our life to you, where we said yes. And even as we may be still struggling our way forward, Lord, we would reaffirm that today. We say yes. Yes to salvation. Yes to redemption. Yes to forgiveness. And yes to following your plans and purposes for our lives. And Lord, for some of my friends here today, that might be the first time they've made a decision like that, the first consideration. They've had all kinds of thoughts about you, maybe even biblical knowledge, but there's been this sense that you're too far away, that you're unable to be known, that we can't know for certain. Lord, let them encounter you today in the person and work of Jesus. Thank you that everybody here was created in the image of God, Lord, that they have intrinsic value to you and that you have written eternity in your hearts is what your word says. And God, we thank you that you also came 
in our image so that we would know you, that we would encounter you, where we would be able to make more sense of what it means to be in right relationship with you. And Lord, give us that certainty today. That more than what we've studied and more than what we would know, more than what we would pursue through our own reason or academia, that we would just know Jesus personally and simply and that that encounter would change us and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Some action steps for you this week. One, I want to encourage you to read John chapter 9. Just one of the narratives in John shows some activity of Jesus. As you read that, consider what you can know about God because of how Jesus is interacting in that passage. And then I would encourage you to kind of journal those thoughts, write those down, and then share that with somebody else this week.